Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 26, Eigenrobot versus Celentilechia. Hi, all. I'm here with Celentilechia or Moon. How do you like to be known? I usually call you Moon for the sake of brevity. Either's good. Celentilechia is a bit of a mouthful. It actually it did not occur to me that anyone would ever be trying to say that out loud. Yeah, right. It's strange. Um, or I guess Selene. Sometimes I abbreviate it like that. Anyway, hey, all. We are recording. You've probably already heard our baby in the background. Is she is she nursing right now? Or Yeah, she's eating. Oh no. Um, so welcome everyone to, to what our baby sounds like. Um, yeah, this is, this is really interesting. I mean, you're sitting in a room maybe 15 feet from where I am and we're recording a podcast, which is unusual for us. We've never really had this kind of a directly, I don't know, like performative conversation before. Haven't we on Twitter? Oh, that feels different, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. Uh, is there anything you want to shill starting out? I don't think I have anything to shill. Okay. Well, think it over. Okay. Um, yeah. So I guess I guess we're doing this by popular demand. Um, most podcasts that I'm doing are partly an excuse for me to just talk to people, and it feels a little bit interesting because we just talk a lot. Maybe a little bit less now that the baby's here, and, and maybe more of our conversations are based around what does the baby need at any given point in time. But I I wonder if this might end up being difficult because we sort of know what we think about things. And anytime we don't, we tend to clear it up pretty quickly. Yeah. I'm not entirely yeah, I'm not entirely sure how this is gonna go. But that's fine. Um so yeah, so you've got a list. Um, what, what do you want to talk about today on? Um, I'm scrolling through the list of suggestions on Twitter and I might just start answering things that jump out at me. Yeah, do it. Okay. So Alibot wanted to know why make Babby now, <laughs> which actually might be a funny story. Yeah, go for yeah. it. So we were planning to do a wedding, probably early spring this year, which clearly didn't happen. And then start trying for a baby roughly around maybe a few months before that. Um, and then COVID hit and the wedding wasn't going to happen. And the only reason our baby timing was so far out was that I didn't want to be fat in a wedding dress. And <laughs> <laughs> so COVID hit and it got around, we got around to April and it, was pretty clear that this wasn't going to be ending anytime soon. And I was feeling really pissed off. I was, I was pretty angry by that point in lockdown, just constantly. And so it was kind of spite kind of why not now that the only reason we were delaying it is no longer a factor. And so I researched the safety of pulling out your own IUD. Turns out it wasn't that dangerous, even though I cannot in good conscience endorse endorse it because yada yada not a medical professional but i would say be brave and and just endorse things i don't know i, yeah. I spent an entire 
entire thread late this morning, early this morning, talking about things that I do in my life. And I think at least tacitly endorsing them. Okay, fuck it. Yeah, it was not that dangerous. It did not hurt that much. And if you've had a good experience having IUDs inserted and having them taken out, at least the hormonal one, which I had the tiny version, was perfectly easy to pull out on my own. So I mean, t- to be fair, you repeatedly have a tiny cervix too. Yeah, that that was weird when I was told that. I guess it's not. An, it turns out it was not an impediment to childbirth, but yeah. So, yeah. so I did some research. Turns out it wasn't that dangerous. Although everything I looked up was talking about this horrible trend of women doing this on their own and how dangerous it was. It was a little nauseating, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. But, um, little nauseating, minimal cramps, and then we started trying, and I didn't actually think it would take very quickly and then my parents ended up moving in for my mom's transplant so I thought well it's really unlikely that a baby's going to happen within the next few months because and it tends to take people like up to six months to a year or something and my mom's here and that kind of kills the romance when your parents are in the next room over but nope it was on roughly the second cycle that we ended up with we ended up with the baby I'll take credit for that. And I'll be right back. I'm going to turn off the heat. I, I think there's like a, a low, low buzz in the background. Give me one sec. Okay. Podcast listeners, I sit in stony, in, 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 in Arctic chill, just to make sure that we have a good, good product. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, it was great. And I, I think for me, that was maybe the one area of greatest concern like what if we have trouble conceiving because you know some people or a lot of people do and yes i was was worried about that until you pull it off you don't really know how hard it's gonna be yeah and i there was also this element too like so much of what we were planning together was oriented around building a family and i Mm. i had so much anxiety like What's it going to be like if it turns out we can't have a family? Because I'm pretty shy about adoption, except in some special circumstance cases. Yeah. Um, and I, I was pretty confident, you know, we'd get through it, but I wasn't quite sure what that would look like when so much of what we were trying to build together involved children. Yeah. No, no, I agree. I mean, I, I was worried about that. And I, I guess ultimately I'm pretty happy that that's just not something we needed to deal with. Yeah. Which was lucky. And I'm really yeah. glad for that. So, okay. Yeah. So that timing of baby was a uh, largely fuck it. Why not? And also largely out of spite on my part. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, I think you were the one who wanted more time before having kids. I was absolutely not an impediment. I, I was just ready to go. So yeah. Yeah. I think all I needed to do was uh, soothe my anxiety about pulling the IUD out. I was oddly less nervous about doing that back in April than I was about going into the doctor. And in retrospect, yeah. You know, actually, it seemed like, thinking back on it, it seemed like there was a long period where it felt to me as though you were trying to give yourself permission to do it and you wanted to. Am I wrong about that? There was was some internal conflict. I really wanted to just go ahead and do it. And I had some reservations that are kind of hard to access or articulate now. I think one thing I've learned over the last year or so 
is that a lot of times my wheel spinning over stuff is pretty fake. And I actually feel the best about life when I'm making irreversible decisions. Yeah. And I'm not actually that bad at it. I don't tend to get myself in huge amounts of trouble. It's actually when I'm waffling back and forth on stuff that I tend to do the dumbest things. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of interesting. And I don't think, I don't think my entire brain is on board with that approach to life yet, but yeah, I tend to, I actually tend to have kind of a wave of euphoria after I do something completely or mostly irreversible. Yeah. Interesting. So anytime you're feeling down, get a tattoo. I don't, I, (laughs) I'm still nervous that the one I have is going to turn out to be some white supremacist symbol at some point. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, everything will be. Yeah. Um, man. Okay. Uh, cool. So I hope that clears things up, Ollie. Um, I don't know. Next question. Oh, oh, shoot. If you want to move through sequentially. Well, I wasn't moving through sequentially in the first place, but Mm. let me think. Someone said to just have a normal married conversation about what we need from the grocery store, but I haven't figured out what I need you to pick up from the grocery store yet today. So I'm going to skip that one. Oh, I can, I can say what we need from the grocery store. We need more chocolate milk uh, because we've run out. You tend to mix it with your whole milk when you have a breakfast sandwich. You're the one who started doing that with me when, uh, when you started making breakfast sandwiches for me. Yeah. Well, you know, I asked, I thought you might like it. And chocolate milk is fantastic. And and this chocolate milk in particular, I don't know. I I will admit that when I make those sandwiches, I have just plain white whole milk myself, but I usually take a pull from the chocolate milk. That's not really a confession. It's just something I do. Yeah, and I haven't figured out what I want for meals this week. Yeah, I should make enchiladas. I should get enchilada fixins and just make a batch or two. Okay. And think- then store it up. I think next next week I want to try to try to make some stew. Oh yeah, do it. Um, okay, so we need we need milk. We need normal milk too. I think we're good on ham. I have bought so much Swiss cheese. It was on sale, so I freeze most of the blocks. Froze frozen. I froze most of the blocks of Swiss cheese. We've got we've got several pounds of that. Good on ham. Good on bread. Probably I might get another loaf. And, uh, we need the, uh, what do you, what do you call the things? The dish scrubbers, um, the little green scrubber sponges. Yeah. Sponges. I guess they're sponges, but they, they have the, the rough bit. Yeah. So I need more of those and they're not green. They're brown. Are you colorblind? You're you're talking, no, you're talking about the, the sponge and scratch pad combo things. I was thinking about, I don't know why I was thinking about the just green scratch pads. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we probably need more diapers too. Do you think she's ready for stage two in a few weeks? I guess she's ten pounds now, and it'll probably take her another month to get up to four. I would get. Ten, I yeah. would get another pack or two of the of the stage one. Yeah. Okay. Any we don't use, we can just give away. That's true. Um, or make collages or something mixed media. Put on the cats. Okay. Cool. Um, that's our. That's yeah. I guess that's our grocery list. Okay. What else is there? Nerf gun. We could talk about Nerf gun uh, rules of engagement. Oh, yeah. So, so <laughs> rules of engagement. <laughs> I don't know if there are any rules. This is war. Well, you never shoot me when I'm holding the baby, so. That's true. Well, I have once, but you were facing away from me, so I'll shoot you in the back, but I won't shoot you when you're holding a baby. 
Um, yeah, so this the story with that. What was the what was the original story? There was a therapist who had a Nerf gun in their office, and they were shooting it was, their patient. It was a Tumblr post that I saw ages ago, and I can't find it now. But someone said that their therapist pulled out a Nerf gun and started shooting them during sessions whenever they said something negative about themselves. Nice. And you were like, I'm going to get a Nerf gun. And I didn't really expect you to get a Nerf gun, although I should have known better. Yeah. And <laughs> yes. I didn't expect you to get an enormous Nerf gun. It's really big. <laughs> I think, is it called like the judge? I think it's called the judge. Something like that. Yeah. I wasn't expecting it to be as large as it is, but it's, it's enormous. Holds 30 darts, shoots three at a time, pump action. Fantastic. I hit, I hit it for a while. Yeah. I'm amazed at that because it's pretty big and difficult to hide. So yeah, so we've got a Nerf gun and I shoot, I shoot moon whenever she apologizes unnecessarily for something. And I think it's been working. I think you've gotten a lot better at it, even more so than when I was just sort of making fun of you for apologizing for things. Well, sometimes, sometimes you just say something about the Nerf gun or sometimes I'll apologize and then I'll remember the Nerf gun and I'm like, damn it. (laughs) And it, it feels like it's worked much better than say the Eliezer Yudkowsky behavioral modification where what did they do? Like they gave him an M&M every time he apologized or he, he was a dick. No, every time he was pleasant. Oh, okay. Positive reinforcement. Yeah. So maybe, I think that's what it was. I don't know how long that went on. Yeah. So maybe it's caused him to become pleasant more often, but not actually reduced the frequency of being a dick. I don't know. See, the positive reinforcement stuff never worked for me because if the reward was within my capacity to provide for myself, i very uh, toad and frog, but we can simply eat the cookies. Oh, sure. Yeah. Baby, what's up? She's very vocal. Yeah. She might be trying to pass gas right now. Oh, well, yeah. So that that has been interesting for me. How much time the baby spends trying to make her intestines work. It's very I, cognitively demanding. Yeah. Oh no! Oh here, no! Here. Come here! Come here! Oh, do you need a break? No, she just wanted to be in a different position. Okay, cool. We can we can pause recording anytime and just stitch it together afterward if okay. uh, if baby gets too fussy. Okay. It's okay. Oh no! It's your podcast debut. What do you think about that? What do you think? Oh no! By popular demand. Yeah. Yeah, you want, um, to try, you want to try eating on the other side? What about that? This, for those of you who are listening, this is this is how a lot of our conversations go these days. Like not not sitting back and, and reading tweets at each other, and not discussing, you know, meditation or oh, no. or or you know whatever whatever neuroses tend to be preponderant on the timeline in at any given moment. But what's up with the baby? Why is she making these sounds? Is she okay? Does she need something else? Does Moon need something else? I mean, if if you're a new dad, I find that my role is is less direct childcare, although I do change diapers quite a lot, and more okay. The baby needs her mom specifically. She needs milk and or sleep and or contact specifically from her mom because baby wants that a lot of the time. And how do I facilitate that as much as I possibly can? So there's a lot of like getting food or getting water for, for moon or doing grocery runs or, you know, just kind of sort of holding the baby while, while she goes and takes a shower or some such, but it's, it's very much an auxiliary role. 
And I wasn't expecting that. I thought maybe the baby would want more direct attention from me, but I don't think she does yet. And I think I'm she totally, will soon. She probably will soon. I mean, she, she seems to like me, but it's more a matter of mostly she really likes eating. Yeah, I think I think that eating is the is the thing. I think if she were on bottles and formula or something, you'd have a much more you'd be much more of a dominant comfort figure for her. Yeah. And I mean I'm, you know, I'm reasonably good at entertaining people and I think as soon as she starts to be more receptive to books in particular and be able to follow along, I'll I'll be able to take over quite a lot more. Yeah. But, you know, for now it's like just kind of being on standby all the time. Yeah. Cool. Well, she seems she seems calmer. Yeah, um, she, she found that she wanted to wanted to try the other breast. Yeah. Well, I get that. <laughs> and she's also farting, so that's exciting. Yeah. Good job. Good job. I yeah. That that she has may, been interesting. She may make us take this podcast off the internet when she's about twelve. That's fine. <laughs> I I don't think this reflects very much on on her character as an adult. Although I don't know, it, it does seem like she already has some personality traits. Like she's very good at self-regulating. It seems like, you know, she doesn't cry very much and never really going purple or, or going on nonstop. Yeah. She usually gives us a couple of warning cries and then gives us a yeah. chance to meet whatever need to try to figure out whatever need she has. Yeah. There's, I mean, that's interesting about having a baby. There's, there's that, that old stereotype of like, you should know why I'm mad at you. That, that men may have to deal with in relationships, but that's literally how it is with a baby. You know, she can't communicate. She just has needs and she will get upset if they're not met. And, you know, she can't communicate them, but she'll continue being mad until they're met. So you've just got to kind of intuit it. On the bright side, she has like three needs. So yeah. what's up now? Do you have, is one of those needs present right now? Maybe. <laughs> there you go. Let's try. She might need a diaper change or something. Yeah. Oh, I think she's getting a little grumpy. So we okay. may need to have an intermission. Okay, intermission. All right, we're back. Baby has been uh, changed or her diaper's been changed. She is nursing again. Every piece is restored to the land. Everything's fine. <laughs> there's there's a lot of this these days. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's kind of fun trying to figure out how to do normal stuff with a baby's needs. Yeah. At the top of the priority list. A lot of interesting problem solving. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's not so bad. She, yeah, you know, she, she just does her thing. She, she expresses when she needs something else. And, you know, otherwise it's... I don't know. I guess it's more of a, a burden for you directly, physically, you know, like right now you are, uh, how would you describe your position? I am a uh, kind of confined to a chair with a little, with a little like nursing pillow with her on top of me placed very, a very careful distance away from the microphone. If anything really has to move, I'm going to have to reorganize everything again. So that, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of um, her just wanting to be on me. And the carrier helps with that sometimes, but a lot of times, yeah, no, she just wants to sleep on my skin or be nursing or be walked around and rocked. And there's a lot of stuff. It turns out you can't actually do when a baby yeah. is. 
so even I feel pretty good with my postpartum recovery, but I'll be, I'll be sitting there thinking, Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. And then I'll realize that I've set my notebook. I don't know, just six inches away from where I can reach it. And if I don't, and if I move at all, she's going to unlatch and it's going to be another minute or so of her getting frustrated and trying to relatch her. So I just have to sit there and look at my phone again. Yeah. But it, it does feel like, uh, Sticking around on my phone has finally been, has finally found its its position in my life. Yeah, like the it, it's occupying exactly the right the right amount of time and the right amount of attention, and not actually dominating that much because when she's not on top of me, the last thing I want to do is be looking at my phone. I want to go do things oh, like sure. pee or take a shower. Yeah. Oh no, you okay? How you doing? Guys, there this this may end up just being a lot of us paying attention to baby noises, and I'm I'm totally fine with that. I hope that you seems, are too. That seems fine. It's what the people want. That's what the so, people want to hear the baby. They want to hear us talk about the baby. So let's just see here. Baby talk the audience too. Yeah. There you go. Okay. I think we're relaxed. Okay. What else do people want? Um, I think there, I think it was uh there were a lot of questions about um, sort of the, the reactions that we got to taking the baby outside and maybe the discussion of just wanting to have babies around. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was, it was really interesting. I think people were gushing over the baby maybe more than they do by default. Yeah. Um, although I'm not sure I've never actually carried an infant around that much, especially not while I was obviously the parent. So maybe this is just the normal amount that people gush over babies in public. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure, but a lot of them were older people. And I thought maybe, maybe there's a chance a lot of them just have not seen a lot of kids in the last year. Oh yeah. I mean, I guess if you're an older person, what, what kids and babies do you really get to see in the world? I mean, I guess your family. Yeah. And what, what else even, well, if you, you know, vol- and it- you can volunteer, but that was probably thin on the ground for COVID. Um, yeah. There was probably a lot of just not going to see anyone who was older than about 50 because of everyone's worry about, I don't know, infecting their grandparents. Yeah. Although, you know, even, even there, I, I, I think, you know, if you're an older person, you probably live in a retirement community a lot of the time or around a lot of other older people. So maybe you get to see their grandkids, but oh no, trouble. Eh, I think she needs a burp. Hey. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna get her. Um, no, I think she's. I think she's okay. Okay. There you go. But, I mean, one, hey. and you know, if you're if you're younger, maybe your friends have kids. I mean, you know, we we get to see Polly Math's kids on a semi regular basis, and I, I guess oh, they have great. church his groups. Kids are, his kids are his, adorable. His kids are fantastic, and you know, I guess. Uh, a fair number of people on Twitter at this point have kids, although I haven't gotten to see them much lately at all. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess the, the other thing is there's maybe a lot of paranoia about children at this point. You know, I, for example, it's, there's a thing, especially for men where there are these very strong barriers that are put up between adult men and kids and, you know, if I'm out in public, I'm even pretty reluctant to like 
look at kids or pay attention to kids, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I think there's a really strong sort of stigma against just any kind of a- interaction between an adult male and, and kids that they don't know. And that's messed just- up. That's messed up. I hate it. Yeah. And you will you'll be pleased to know that my mom, bless her, is also pissed off about this on a fairly regular basis. Is she? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I wasn't sure she was aware of it. Oh no, she is. And she she does not like it. She's you'll have to I don't know, probably not, but Oh, honey. Oh, she's got a lot of rants about how uh, mistreated men are when it comes to childcare culturally. And even if even if that's not actually true on the ground, the fact that we all have this cultural perception that men are really mistreated when it comes to being able to take care of kids is yeah. also pretty screwed up. Oh and yeah, I guess she spent enough time in the court system that she probably has some pretty uh, pretty grating beliefs about this. She had some she had some choice words for me and my siblings, but especially my brothers about the uh, ability for women to be abusive too. Like that always especially pissed her off. Yeah, was that assumption? But yeah, I think some men are segregated. Adult men are segregated from kids. Teenage boys aren't babysitting a whole lot, although they should. I really liked the male teenage babysitters I had when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh no, what's wrong? What's wrong? Hey, come here. No. <laughs> trying to determine what she what she might want right now. Oh no. She made another intermission. Another intermission. Down. Yeah. All right. All right, the baby is maybe asleep. <laughs> this this might be a an informative illustration of what new parenting is like. Just yeah. a lot of having to be available at the drop of a hat. Yeah, and it's not bad. No, no, it's not bad at all. But it, has, it is a lot. It it it's quite a bit more. quite a bit more time consuming than I thought and attention consuming. And it's already yeah. it's already getting better in that I'm getting used to the attention allocation. And I feel like I can do more than I could say the first week. But definitely a lot. Breastfeeding especially is time consuming as hell. Yeah. I I had no idea how much she was going to eat. I expected maybe she would want to eat, say, three or four times a day and she would eat for half an hour and then just sleep for a lot of the rest of it. But no, it's been almost constant when she's been awake and she's usually awake. Yeah. And sometimes she sleeps longer stretches. Mm. So let's see here. Do you want to talk about labor? Because that was something that I found to be really intense and I wasn't even going through labor. Yeah. We talk about it. I'm not entirely sure how to talk about it. Um, that's that's interesting in itself, I think. Yeah. What? I, I remember kind of wanting to go without the epidural just because of the recovery time benefit. Mm-hmm. And so I'd been doing a lot of reading on mentally managing the pain and kind of thinking about my relationship to pain. And I actually went into it feeling pretty cocky. <laughs> Did you? Good. A little bit, yeah. Like, I, I thought, you know, like okay, maybe I can do this. It's going to be really hard. There's a few points that are just going to be almost unmanageable, but I think I can push through it to the end. Yeah. And uh, I knew there was a point at some point in the dilation that would be pretty intense where you was kind of 
you were not going to get much of a break from, I wasn't going to get much of a break from the pain. So I was prepared for that. What I wasn't prepared for was, I think the stress of getting checked into the hospital stalled out the labor. Yeah. But they didn't want me to be in labor too long. So they, they wanted to do more inducing with the little Foley bulb, which is for anyone who doesn't know, it's this little thing they stick up into your cervix and then they inflate it with saline and it's supposed to mimic the weight of the baby's head on your cervix and help your cervix kind of widen. And after that, they wanted to start the, the Pitocin, which is synthetic oxytocin to kickstart labor. Um, so after I'd been there for a few hours and things weren't really progressing in part because they had all these sensors on me that slipped every time I had a contraction, which meant that every time I had a contraction, someone had to come in and touch me, which made me pissed off, which I think slowed the labor down. Yeah. That's the, what was the, what was the lady's name? The midwife, uh, May? Um, the, the doula? No, the, the one who wrote the midwife. Oh, Ina May. Ina May. I mean, her, her big, her theory is that labor is helped along by like the mother feeling good and whenever doctors come in and, and fuss around and are generally nuisances, it sort of messes things up. Yeah. Like once my, the sensory overload was pretty bad and I had the presence of mind to grab like a, a sleep mask when we were heading to the hospital. And thank God I did. Cause eventually just having my eyes open was too much, even when the contractions weren't so bad. And at one point I was just like, give me 20 minutes alone before you start poking me again. And they couldn't even really do that, which was aggravating. Yeah. And they were, I mean, more context The the sensory apparatus they had was very bad and it, it showed the baby as having a low heart rate, low defined as lower than a hundred beats per minute. And that's concerning, but I also, it, it also often, you know, jumped up to normal range. And also sometimes it doubled and had her over 200 beats a minute. And, and, and just, you know, as somebody who works with often ugly data for a living, I did not trust the measurement, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, just the fact that they were unable to get a steady read of data from this thing made me think that there was a lot of measurement error going on. And, you know, on one hand, I was pretty risk averse because you don't want your baby's heart rate dropping below some some normal range. But I also just didn't quite trust that they actually understood what her heart rate was at any given point in time. Yeah. So we, we, get, we go to get checked in because my contractions are so many minutes apart and lasting for however long. And they detect this low heart rate and they think the baby has an arrhythmia. But they also think it could be uh, faulty equipment. So they get me checked into the birth room, and they have someone from uh, maternal fetal medicine, which are the people who handle the really complicated cases like uh, people on chemo and, and pregnant. And the maternal fetal medicine people have been great. I went and saw them because I was on some ADHD meds, and they effectively told me, you're fine. But just the general level of competence from those people vastly, vastly surpassed the confidence of, or the competence of the average person I interacted in the normal birthing center. And they weren't even bad, but the maternal fetal medicine guy came in and said, baby probably doesn't have an arrhythmia. They still would not let me go without having heart monitors strapped to my belly. And the heart monitors were wireless, which was nice, except every time I contract, I had a contraction, they slipped which meant someone had to come adjust them, which meant that when I was at my most 
needing to focus and work with the contraction and kind of flow with the pain, I had somebody touching me. <laughs> and I was I got very angry over the course of labor, which was a pretty fun experience because also my my inhibitions about being angry just kind of went away. Yeah, you're furious. I I, I mean it was remarkable for anyone who wasn't there, which is, you know, all of you. She I mean Moon is is somebody who's I don't know. I don't know if I call you retiring, but you don't spend a lot of time act. I I don't know that I've ever seen you angry at a person before. Oh yeah. I've, you've seen me angry, but yeah, I don't think you've seen me angry at anybody. Uh, Yeah. And I, I remember when I, I mean, you, you were reading these guys, the riot act. (laughs) Yeah. So, so they put one, so that's why labor was slowing down is because they kept having to touch me. And I'm pretty sure that the reason they kept having to touch me was because their equipment was bad, which meant I had to stay strapped to their equipment. Very, very irritating. I think at one time, at one point I asked Eigen to just reassure me that I wasn't crazy and that this was bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he did. And, and he actually had a great suggestion, which was to think of every medical person that was coming into the room as just another symptom of having a contraction that I had to deal with. So that, that got me through, that got me through quite a ways. The doula also did. If you can afford to hire a doula for childbirth, absolutely do it. She was great. She, and also the things that kind of sound like woo bullshit that are supposed to help you through a contraction actually help. So if you can afford it, get a doula, listen to her. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you, it was really striking to me when you're having contractions, how prepared you seemed. Uh, I mean, both, both with the contractions and with the pushing at the end. I mean, I ju- jumping ahead a little bit. Um, should we jump ahead a little bit? Do you want to, I'll, I'll, I'll finish going through the, the process here or, or where, where were we fully bulb got inserted so that they could start the, start the inducing to move me along. Yeah. And that wasn't quite how I wanted things to go, but I was like, okay, whatever. Um, they also had me on an IV. They were shoving me full of fluids. So I had to carry the dumb IV thing around um, for the fluids and for the Pitocin. Uh, and after about, what was it like an hour after they had the bulb in? Yeah. I started getting extremely, extremely intense contractions. And I didn't notice at the time, but the baby was turned the wrong way. And apparently that can lead to something called back labor, which is often, I'm not sure universally, but often more excruciating than normal contractions. And I just, I remember the visualization I had of this pain was like, just kind of this really bright red and orange swirling fire around my back. And I could feel it coming and I could feel that it wasn't stopping. And I just had to do a lot of really rapid emotional <laughs> negotiation with the part of me that was trying to reject reality yeah. in order to get through it. And I was kind of writing it out for a while. And eventually the Foley bulb popped out cause I dilated enough. Um, I managed to get into the bathtub for a while, but that kind of made things worse cause I couldn't get into the right position. And after about, after a few hours of this and just kind of screaming and shouting and swearing through, um, through the contractions, 
Oh, and also interesting. I did find that swearing didn't help very much. <laughs> um, but I was glad you did it. Yeah. Yeah, I think some people needed to hear you cussing at them. <laughs> and and I think maybe it was, I don't know, you were talking about your inhibitions about being angry at people who were lowered. I, I don't know. That seemed like a good experience. No, it was great. It was great. I felt very, very justified in establishing whatever boundary I could. Um, but basically, I just ended up with in quite a bit more pain than I expected. And every time a contraction happened, I... Just kind of, there was like this little part of me that just really didn't want it to be happening. And I was getting better at just telling that part to relax and kind of having to do this little, like this mental motion of kind of jumping into ice cold water. And I think if I had not been so damn exhausted, I probably could have gotten through it without the epidural. I'm not, I don't think there's any virtue in that, but I still kind of wanted to. But at some point I was just like, I am not going to have any energy left to push if I don't get an epidural. Yeah, you were. So I'm in context for this. We we had gone in at, we had arrived at maybe 7.40, 8 o'clock the previous evening after you'd been awake all day, of course. And you had spent, you know, pretty much the entire night awake. I think you got an hour or two of sleep in there in, in broken chunks, but you were you were really tired. And... By and no the one time, would leave you alone, of course. And no, no one would leave you alone. I think the you the your, your contractions started really in earnest from the pitocin and the ball bat about five a.m. And then you the the bathtub incident when the the Foley bulb popped out and when the pain was getting really intense for you, I think it was around seven thirty. Okay. So at that point, you'd been awake almost twenty four hours, and you know under under some amount of physical duress. And you were, you were kind of a mess. I mean, when, when all that happened in the, in the tub, it seemed like you were sort of on your last legs. And that was when we called for the epidural. Well, I asked, I asked the doula, I'm like, am I going to have any energy to push? Like, like what's going to leave me with enough energy to actually push? Cause I was afraid that I would get to the pushing stage and I would be so tired and, if the baby's in your birth canal too long, sometimes they'll, I think, do a C-section or they'll use forceps or just all kinds of things can really go wrong Wrong if you get to pushing and you actually can't finish it. And she said that she thought the epidural would leave me with more energy. And so I went with that. And they were, they were great. They got in there about, what, five minutes after I said, yeah, I want the epidural. Yeah. Anesthesiologist came very quickly. So he said, okay, I want an epidural. They got the team set up. And I mean, to be clear at that point, you were dilated about probably seven or eight centimeters. They, they measured afterward and it was eight. And um, I think I went from like three to eight in about an hour. Yeah, it was very fast. So yeah. And you, I mean, like they were, and they were fine with you swearing at them. I think I wish they had stopped talking to you during the contraction. Like you kept asking them. They, they, yeah, they walked in and they tried to hand me some paperwork to sign or ask me stuff. And I'm like, I'm trying to get through a contraction. I'm like, just give me a second. Give me a second. And then finally, I'm like, oh, my God, shut the fuck up for 30 seconds. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, um, part of the issue was as soon as I made the mental decision to get the epidural, that little part of me that was like demanding that the pain was not actually happening just kind of took over. And so all this very careful negotiating with the pain that I had been doing just went out the window and everything was about 
three times as unbearable as it had been. So those mm. last those last ten contractions or so were just the worst. And and these guys are like trying to get me to sign some shit. Of course, once they get it, like they took about two contractions to get it placed. And once they got it placed, it was about five, 10 minutes before I started to get some real relief. And I was like, I'm sorry for swearing at you. It must be really hard for your, you know, to, to be in a job where you walk in with people screaming at you. And the guy just laughs and goes, no, cause in five minutes, we're usually their favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> but they, yeah, were they were good natured about it. Yeah. I, I don't know. My, my impression of the, the competence of the medical staff was that the, and, and, you know, this without trying to denigrate anybody is that the anesthesiologists and then the the lady who was actually leading the delivery were far and away the most capable people there. Oh, yeah. No, the, the, the doctor that actually did the delivery for the pushing, she was great. Um, after I got the epidural in, the baby was still turned around. And she said that if we couldn't get her turned around with uh, some positioning stuff, which we tried that didn't work... Um, she would have to either, she just, she came and she just laid out all of these options in like increasing order of escalation. And so if the baby didn't turn around from the position change, then they would have to try manually turning her. And, uh, turns out she had to manually turn her and she did have forceps in the room. We didn't have to use those luckily. Um, but the, the manual turning did not hurt at all once I had the epidural in. So that was good. Yeah. And they, I don't know, did they, did they bring in the, the, um, the manual chainsaw? No. <laughs> we should talk think, about that. Oh gosh. Yeah. The other night I was, I saw some tweet and apparently up in like, there used to be this procedure. So back in the day before they had a uh, sanitary surgeries, no one really wanted to cut into an alive woman's abdomen because you could just get an infection and die. Uh, so C-sections were just primarily for getting a live baby out of a dead mother, which is, you know, I, I have a lot of complaints about modern childbirth now, but I will, I will take the increased maternal or the decreased maternal fatality rate in exchange right now. Yeah. So what they would do, and I can't remember the word, and I might link to it after, after this is posted, but they had this manual crank chainsaw, which was actually apparently the invention of a chainsaw which they would use to saw through the ligaments and sometimes the straight like just the bone of your pelvis so that they could like pry a wider opening and once c-sections became a more viable surgery that really you know phased out and of course this sort of thing is a last ditch effort no one ever really liked doing it because it can leave the mother with all kinds of long-term issues um although fewer than I expected. I thought that was kind of going to be a, you can't ever walk again sort of thing, but no, I guess some people do recover. And the only place that this stayed popular well past when it should have been was Ireland between the forties and eighties. And I don't know what the hell they were thinking, except I don't know. There's claims that it was because of Catholicism's aversion to C-sections, although I don't actually think that the Catholic Church in general is averse to C-sections. And it's really hard to say why they did this, except that they were psychotic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. Interesting, interesting uh, history of medicine tidbit. Man, <laughs> I chainsaw. Um, so, okay. So they got the epidural in and 
at that point, and and they managed to get the baby turned around. They they gave you like an hour to sleep, and then um, just before the pushing started, and then the the really capable delivery team came in and. They laid out the options. They couldn't get the baby turned around by positioning. She managed to do it by hand. And then it was time for pushing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she basically, once they got the baby turned around, she was right in the perfect position to start pushing. Yeah. So just broader context, the idea of pushing is that's when the baby's actually really passing through the birth canal, which is a, a strange, like a strangely shaped, like sort of short tube through which the baby must pass before before emerging into the world. And the the optimization here is that you want the baby to move through as quickly as possible because being in this like tightly confined space that's often slightly deforming their head is really stressful for the baby. And what you want to do is just get the baby out as quickly as possible so to to minimize their discomfort, to minimize like any trauma that they might be experiencing by by really this final phase of being born. So while this is happening, mother's job is to like use her abdominal muscles in a way well, I still don't not understand. Exa- not oh. exactly your abdominal muscles. It's kind of the motion you're making is kind of adjacent to the motion that you would take to poop, basically. Yeah. It's kind of this like deep muscle bearing down. It's not really flexing like your abs exactly. Uh-huh. And I think I think I read somewhere that that's a mistake a lot of people make is is kind of just trying to flex their abdominals in the front. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe I got some benefit from lifting here because once I had a little bit of feedback, it was pretty easy to pretty easy to tell which muscles I needed to be using. And the anesthesiologists were great because however they dosed me was just enough to take the pain away, but not so much that I couldn't feel what I was doing at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also a problem people have with epidurals is not being able to get any physical sensation feedback when they're pushing. Mm. So I could tell when I was having a contraction, even though it didn't hurt anymore. And whenever that happened, I would tell the would tell the people they would lift my legs up a little bit, and then I would make this kind of bearing down movement for as long as I could. I don't remember how they counted it out. Oh, and- I remembered. <laughs> Uh, because I, I partly took over to let the let the rest of the team do what they want needed to do. The the count was to ten. Oh, okay. So and, I think they had me hold my breath while I was pushing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that part that part was actually pretty exhilarating. Especially once they said that I was making good progress, like they could see the baby. That was yeah. that was a lot of fun. You you were making fantastic progress. I mean everybody was psyched up while it was going on. And yeah, I mean, so so basically, they contractions would last long enough for you to have three three pushes, and so there would be the set of ten seconds where you were pushing as hard as you could and holding your breath, and we were counting it out for you, and then you would take a break, like often a very short break. You were pretty eager to head back into it after you took a breath, and then you go for another ten seconds, and a break, and another ten seconds, and usually by then the contraction had faded, but. And and then we would break for you know maybe thirty seconds or a minute while while you recovered a little bit from that push, but you were great at it. You seemed like you went into it knowing exactly what sort of motion you needed to make. And the doula, the doula was like, "Oh, good job! You practiced in advance." And I was just thinking, oh, "I actually didn't practice at all." Well, but you read about it. Right? I did. I did. I did read a lot about it, and I think again, the weightlifting that I'd done for a few years prior helped a lot. 
in knowing how to engage those muscles. Yeah. And, um, so the, I mean, my understanding from you is that the, usually if you have an epidural, it's like three hours of pushing. Something like between one and two. I'm not sure what the average is probably okay. getting something wrong, but you took maybe 20 or 30 minutes. So that, that felt nice. That was, that was a bit of an ego boost. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it was a huge relief for me. You know, I, like I said before, the, the aim is to keep the baby in the birth canal for as short a time as possible, just to avoid any kind of, you know, trauma or injury. And so, you know, I, I guess if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about what this was like for me. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, you know, watching your wife in a position where perhaps in the past, somebody was very likely to die is <laughs> is a lot and you know i mean it was i was watching you going through some pretty extreme pain which was pretty stressful and i really i really appreciate by the way that i had no idea how anxious you were the entire time <laughs> yeah well i mean you you had a you had a lot on your plate i didn't want to drop that stuff on you but yeah no I, I mean i was i was very stressed out not not because i expected things to go wrong but just because there were a lot of things that could go wrong and i really had only very limited control over whether they would go wrong or not so, yeah, I mean, that, that was me for a lot of the night. And then, you know, the, I think the part leading up, the, the later contractions that you were having where you were really in excruciating pain was pretty stressful just because, you know, it's hard to watch somebody in a state like that. And then when you were pushing, it was more exhilarating, especially once they, once they got her turned around, the, the bit that was pretty tough was, you know, just worrying about the baby being in a bad position so close to labor yeah. and, you know, the possibility that they might have to do some kind of an emergency C-section. I mean, I, I really didn't want that. And, you know, the possibility that she might have some kind of, um, some kind of heart trouble in the birth canal was really very stressful. But then when she was actually being born, it, for me, it was pretty exhilarating too. And maybe you were vibing off of that yeah. or maybe I was vibing off of you. Well, and the doctor was really competent, you know, I, I appreciated the way she presented all of the options. Yeah. Yeah, no, she, she was great. I mean, she knew exactly what she was doing. She was completely in control of the situation uh, below your waist, which is a funny way to talk about it. But I mean, the, the entire team was, you know, down ready to receive the baby. And then it was you and me and either the doula or one of the nurses who were, you know, paying attention to, you know, head and shoulders. So, Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's still something that pops into my mind sometimes just the, this entire experience of the birth and, and, and labor and what all went into it. I mean, it was one of the more intense experiences of my life, it even was, as somebody who was sort of just an adjacent participant rather than the person who's actually doing it. It was really psychedelic in a lot of ways. Like there was, there was very much this altered headspace. Um, which is another reason it was so annoying that they wouldn't stop touching me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I feel I actually feel really good about how it went. There's like nothing went very little went how I planned or how I ideally wanted it in advance. But there's really only a few points where I can say I wish I'd made a different decision. And there's nothing there's no part where I feel like I could have made a different decision. I think for our next baby, I'd like to work on being a little less tense about medical environments in general. Yeah. Um, and maybe just a little more prepared to be irritated. Um, and also I let myself get really out of shape during COVID and next baby, I want to be in much better shape. 
Yeah. I like even like right now, a few weeks postpartum, I'm just kind of kicking myself. Like it would be really nice to have gone into this with, you know, a deadlift habit. Yeah. <laughs> it would be helping my back a lot right now. <laughs> and so probably yeah, being in shape and being less tense, I think. But everything else went really well, even though it didn't go how I wanted it to. Yeah. Well, I mean, inshallah, next time there won't be a global pandemic that's causing problems for us. So, And if there is, I'm going to start wondering what the hell it is about my children. <laughs> oh, no. Ah. So, yeah. And I, I guess the other thing to say about this is that, you know, we ended up with a healthy screaming baby who has been doing really well after birth. So... Eating you constantly. Know, yeah, eating constantly, gaining tons of weight. And she she was born at, what, just shy of eight pounds, I think? Yeah. And, you know, she dipped down. So a thing that happens after birth, for those of you who don't have kids, is that babies seem to lose weight because mother's not producing a ton of milk yet. And well, I think it's also you know, some fluid loss, too. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So so babies babies lose some amount of weight after birth, and that's just expected. You, you just don't want it to be too much, and they monitor that. And, and then, you know, slowly over time, or in our case, incredibly quickly over time, they start gaining that weight back. And I mean, I think she was born just shy of eight pounds and she's about 10 pounds at this point, right? Yeah. Which is a really good uh, weight, a uh, rate of weight gain. So, yeah. So it's great. I mean, you can, you can almost see her growing before your eyes. I mean, not quite in real time, but you know, just week to week the the, the gain and the growth is pretty stark. Yeah. So I do, I do want to say, and everyone told me this and I was like, Oh, ha ha. I'm too anxious to do this. I'm too wired and too excited. But when you're in early labor, like prodromal labor and you're having like weak contractions, go to bed, go to bed, sleep as much as you possibly can. Because if you go to a hospital where they put the baby in the room with you, you're going to be up every two hours. And then you're going to be up like every two hours when you get home with the baby and night three, having her home was extremely rough because I don't think I'd slept more than like 12 hours in three days, which was not enough. And and breastfeeding, especially early on when the baby's trying to get your breast to produce more milk, it's just exhausting. Sleep all you can and you might not be able to, and that's fine. It's just if you can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Night three was definitely the hardest. I, I think we were both pretty close to just like a full on breakdown at that point. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like it's hard, especially because you don't know exactly what actually represents a problem with the baby versus just, this is a baby being a baby and we were completely sleep deprived and we didn't know what to do. And I mean, I think we both call our parents and, and just try to get some advice. And, uh, but after that it was, it's been relatively easy, I think, apart from intermittent sleep deprivation on your side. I think over the course of, you know, three to four weeks here, I've had maybe four really sleepless nights, three or four sleepless nights. And that's, that's not too bad. I've been able to get some decent sleep in like three to four hour stretches. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of sleeping with her right next to me in the room so that I can just roll over and shove my boob in her mouth and then roll back over. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, that feels like a pretty thorough overview. You think we're missing anything? No, I, 
I don't know. It was it was a really interesting experience. It was really intense. And now I uh, I have more opinions than I did, but mostly they they chalk up to just do whatever the hell feels manageable. Yeah. <laughs> as far as birth goes, like epidural was fantastic. Trying to go without it, I can definitely see the appeal because my my legs were so wobbly. And trying to sit up to breastfeed or lay down to breastfeed or move it all and have a baby, that that kind of sucked. So if I can go without an epidural in the future, I might try that. But whatever. Like anyone who moralizes anything about any aspect of childbirth can go jump off of a bridge as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, man. So what else, what else do we have for questions? Let me pull that up again. Yeah, same. I think I've got it somewhere. A little more on the on the childbirth thing. It was really, really interesting how it kind of left me with a better, like more entitlement about feeling angry. Yeah, like that. That was that was actually really good. Like just getting to feel completely unreservedly pissed off. Just having all of this social permission made me, I kind of left the experience not needing nearly as much social permission next time, (laughs) next time I get that mad. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. it's also left me with a, like, I still, I still think anyone who wants kids should do it. Like, if you think you'd be happy raising kids, do it. But also I, I kind of feel about forcing someone to go through childbirth or pregnancy that they'd don't want the same way I would about someone force feeding you psychedelics and then torturing you. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, do you think that would be better or worse than just being tortured? So I think, I think they're, they're similar, like pregnancy and the psychedelic hypothetical are, are similar in that a lot of people can make something really good out of that. And a lot of people can consent to the experience and still have a horrible time. But just the way, just the way that consenting to go through a bad time influences things. Like I've, you know, I've had bad trips in my past and I still endorse the fact that I did them and and how I, you know, what I made, what I made them into. Yeah. And I could see myself having a bad pregnancy in the future and still being pretty happy with, with the other side of things, but still needing to recover from the experience and integrate everything. But also even if even if someone like if someone forced fed me psychedelics and tortured me, even if that turned into something really beautiful, I would still always carry around this core of violation, you know? Yeah. And I think this was my uh, kind of worried about saying this out loud, but, and I'm not absolutely not going to engage with anyone if they try to start discourse about it, but this was my opinion on, on abortion beforehand, which was that it's just tragic it's just tragic that this is the compromise we end up with. And I can see why, like I have a lot of empathy for, for both sides here. And I still think it's probably best that we err on the side of allowing it, but also every single one is a tragedy. And now I just feel like it's an even bigger tragedy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. I guess we disagree about this. Yeah. 
yeah. Oh, well, yeah, your opinion is something about some some deal that we've made with the Fae, right? Yeah, no, Unsealy Court is pissed off every time. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually, actually, this is a good segue. Um, someone someone was asking about about marriage and what. Wait, what how in- does marriage relate to the Unsealy Court? Is there something you're not telling? Well, me? I mean, we this is a this is a profound disagreement that we have. I think. Oh, I see. You know. Uh-huh. And 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 yet somehow we seem to be happily married. So so how do we how do we navigate this? Uh, I think we're both just really agreeable in general. Oh, I interesting. We I think a lot of potential fights we have, we just kind of make fun of each other instead. Yeah, someone someone is asking in particular about how much about sort of some intersection of big five traits and and marriage compatibility. And I wonder, I mean, I don't even remember all of the big five off the top of my head, which I'm fine with, you know, <laughs> take that as, as some indication of my respect for psychometrics. But I mean, maybe just being, having two people who are highly agreeable is pretty important. I mean, I, I would guess that I'm probably very low percentile neuroticism and Maybe you're relatively high neuroticism, like you know, all else equal. No offense. Yeah, no, I'm definitely much higher than you. I don't know how high I am in terms of baseline. Um, I've got that lovely uh, low moderate conscientiousness and high moderate neuroticism, which is a really unpleasant. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really unpleasant. Um, no, I think I think we end up in this situation, and you you might not actually be as aware of this. But we end up in this probably not in the situation where I'm just kind of I've identified somewhere we disagree, and I'm trying to get it all hashed out in advance, and having all these conversations about it, and then you like had no idea that this was even a point of disagreement. Oh yeah, I no honestly, I was, I was about to say like, what are these points of disagreement? I am genuinely not aware of any. <laughs> that's also that's the other thing. Like, you have such a short memory for our fights, and I think. Or, or, or like, I don't even think we really fight that much. Yeah. Mostly, I think the closest we ever come is we kind of end up stepping on on each other's, like, trigger points for past relationships where things would go really bad. Yeah. And so then we end up both feeling really awful and trying not to feel awful, but feeling kind of stuck because we're kind of flashing back to horrible relationships. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like a, there's there's a real feedback loop there. Yeah. But I think where we've gotten slowly gotten better at one, knowing where those points are, and two, just just having this baseline assumption of goodwill that neither of us wants to be feeling this awful. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, the the few times that something like that has happened and we've both just kind of like gone somewhere else to cool off, I forget about it almost instantly. Which has been a little irritating just because yeah. sometimes we'll have a <laughs> whole conver- No, sometimes we'll have a whole conversation about avoiding it in the future and then you'll just completely forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> which means that I actually have to use my words more often, which in a the feminine tradition of wishing you would read my mind. <laughs> yeah, well I, I usually do read your mind though. Yeah, and but I think that's just I think this. it spoils me a little bit because you are actually pretty good at reading my mind and letting me not say things as clearly as I'm probably should um yeah i think we actually had a we had a little like hiccup a couple of weeks ago where we, we had did the, we did 
see where you're done. <laughs> and I, I don't know, I was feeling very, very hormonal. And I just, I remember, I think I kind of stepped on your toes a little emotionally. And I just had this little internal panic, like, what if we can never fight productively? And then uh, when we were talking about it later, we, um, I said something like, I'm just worried that, I don't know, if we have this conflict and then we figure out how to resolve it, but you know, you don't remember what actually happened. And then we have the conflict 10 years later again. And you just said, well, I don't know. It sounds like 10 years of success to me. Yeah. And it had actually never occurred to me that you could just take it moment by moment. And you didn't actually have to solve everything in advance. So. I mean, I, it's, I mean, it's also totally possible that I'm not capable of anything else. So <laughs> I, mean, I hope it's all right. I mean, you know, there's kind of that price of admission concept for relationships. I think I am inclined to feel like every interpersonal problem needs 100% totally solved. Yeah. And I tend to feel more like this in the moment when I'm really, I don't know, activated and stressed out about whatever the conflict is. Yeah. I think the, the other nice thing is you are more will, more willing than most anyone else I've ever dated to kind of clear the air and just get all of the emotional residue picked up and cleaned up. And we don't have a lot of technical debt where we're, I don't know, with conflict, I feel like there's this, the technical debt metaphor is kind of appropriate where you just, you kind of get things handled, but not really, or you just get distracted instead of getting things handled and you never get back to that really secure assumption of goodwill place. Yeah. But you're really, I think we're really good. We understand each other really well. And that makes it really easy for us to actually get to 99 or a hundred percent secure again before moving on. Yeah. Well, I mean, that too is also something that I think might just be my native mode, probably especially with you where it's pretty easy for me to talk to you about, Hey, I noticed that you seem to be feeling this way. And just mentioning it sort of leads you to like, you know, have opinions about it and, and, you know, talk about it productively Yeah, where I don't know. I, I tend to be pretty sensitive to the emotional states of people around me. And so if there's this thing, like if there, if there is actually a thing sitting in the background that seems to be affecting your emotional state negatively, I think I just pick up on the vibe pretty quickly. And I mean, it's unpleasant for me. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes uh, what that means is after we have a little bit of friction, we end up talking about our perception of the other person, like feeling snapped at or something. And then we can really quickly just correct anything that the other person is getting wrong Yeah, about inferring one another's emotional state. Yeah, you're, I also, think that's... you're also usually right. <laughs> that's very sweet of you to say. Well, no, like just just day to day, I think you're you tend to be right about whatever I'm feeling. Yeah, and I think I think we have a pretty good read on one another. Yeah, that's true. Do you you tend to not identify my emotional state that much, or at least you don't say it. And by that, I mean, like, you don't say it out loud to me. Like you seem to be feeling this at some point in time. Oh, I, I track it, but usually you're just kind of handling it yourself. So I don't know. Yeah. You don't get mad very often. Yeah. That, I mean, that that's interesting, actually, that 
the like being studied. Like you definitely study me. You should. You all should know that the baby is giggling in her sleep right now, and it's really. Oh cute. no. Yeah, I mean, who's who's talking about that? Uh, some comedian. Oh, John Mulaney. Something about feeling studied, <laughs> like someone is taking notes on him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I guess his wife does, and I mean that's interesting. I don't take notes on you at all. I think I just tend to notice things in any given moment. Oh, I definitely, I definitely, I don't take notes in the sense of actually writing them down, but I definitely, I do, I do a bit of an anthropological study. Yeah. Note like noticing my habits. The husband which, seems to do X, <laughs> Y, and Z. <laughs> Here we see the husband in his natural environment. Actually. Okay. That, so that's, um, that's one other thing I want to talk about. We've, we're over an hour now, which is totally fine. But um, one thing, one thing that I'm curious about is I, we've talked about, I've talked about this on here with other guests, but this tendency, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot in the last year is maybe the way that I go about living life and the way that I pay attention to things. So, I mean, for example, I have a very particular way of making sandwiches. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have different ingredients and it doesn't even matter what specific kind of sandwich it is. I have a very clear and specific way of how I make them and which pieces of bread I use. And uh, we, like we had that conversation a while ago about um, bread ears and, <laughs> and the distribution, <laughs> you know, like I really like having the last two pieces on the end of a loaf of bread for peanut butter and jam sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've been taking a lot of care to make sure you have them left. And, that, and that's very sweet of you. And I appreciate it. Um, but it seems like maybe I do this a lot and I don't know. I'm, I'm curious whether that seems like it's unusual from your perspective. Hey, like I was thinking about this earlier today. I was reading, um, reading one of the many like meditation and improving improving shit about life books that I, I like to read. And this one was a awareness through movement. And it really just boils down to like pay attention to stuff. No, pay yeah. more pay more detailed attention to things. Make whatever you're doing smaller so that you can notice things more easily. And this keeps being a theme in everything. Is yeah. that like just pay attention notice stuff and i think there's actually a foundation or like a baseline of security that you need to be able to do that Mm. and i might be odd here but i notice that when i get stressed out i get tunnel vision um one thing i do when i'm around people that like if, if i'm feeling socially awkward or if i'm around someone who's really pissing me off or whatever um and if i ever do this to anyone of the people listening that we happen to meet in person um, please don't infer anything but awkwardness from it, but, um, I will stop making eye contact and I'll stop focusing my eyes as clearly. Like I'm actually trying to shut out sensory channels to mm. kind of manage my stress levels. And I think that there are probably a lot of people who do this when they're anxious or stressed or self-conscious or something. The ability to notice things actually decreases. Like you're just like one of the ways that you can kind of self self soothe is to shut down sensory input. Do you think taking guanfacine has helped you get a lot better at this? Yeah, I do actually. And I was shocked that that was the case, but I'm on a, 
very low dose of a, it's actually a blood pressure medication, but my psychiatrist uses it for people with ADHD who have sensory issues. And it's great. I don't get randomly dizzy when I'm bored anymore. <laughs> and I think there's just a lot of, uh, uh, I, th I think his theory is that it has something to do with noradrenaline. I don't, I don't know what the mechanism is there or the proposed mechanism since no one actually knows anything about how these drugs work. But yeah, it actually has improved my, my sensory sensitivity a lot. And maybe, maybe that has something to do with it. The other thing could just be getting older. Yeah. I, I think that sometimes it's hard to tell. I mean, my life is much better now than it was when I was 18 or 22 or whatever. And it's hard to tell which things or which improvements are due to things I actually did and which things were more like hiccup cures where anything you do between point A and point B might've been the thing that stopped it. Yeah. And so I think, I think some of it is just God getting well and truly past, pu past puberty. I felt a lot saner once I hit about 24 or 25. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean like there, that definitely has happened to me too, where I think, just the years between my mid twenties and my early thirties were just a period where everything got to seem quite a lot more straightforward. And, and maybe I just started feeling quite a lot more secure in myself. So I'm actually excited to see what my mid thirties are going to be like on that front. Yeah. Good time to vibe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I've just, I don't know. That was actually one, the one really unpleasant thing about pregnancy that I didn't quite expect was how much the last, like the hormone, the hormonal side effects of like the last month and a half felt like being 18 again. And it was horrible. <laughs> just, just in terms of uh, mood and ability to just deal with things, I yeah. guess, like, like emotionally just take things in stride and it sucked. So I've, I've made notes for myself in the future that that, that might just be a kind of particularly shitty time. Actually, this, this loops into one other thing that I know we've talked about before on the timeline. Do you know what levels of progesterone are like in, in that last month of pregnancy and how that compares to the level of progesterone that one typically ends up on when they're taking hormonal birth control? I don't know, but I mean... Hormones are weird, and the hormonal profile you end up with in pregnancy is not just progesterone. Yeah. But I know that uh, if, man, if I'm remembering this correctly, and if I'm not, someone can yell at us on the timeline later. Uh, I think that the Nexplanon, which is the birth control I had a particularly bad time with, was pretty progesterone heavy. And. I felt exactly like I did on that birth control during the last month of pregnancy. And I tried to look up hormone levels and uh, it turns out it was really hard to find anything definitive, but yeah, I, I think uh, psychiatry and endocrinology don't talk to each other very well. Yeah, I could see that. So I don't know, I guess um, maybe w would you say it's fair to conclude this as the the lesson of this podcast being shat well maybe maybe we shouldn't conclude yet i guess one other thing one other thing that you talked about was 
now I'm going to cut this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Is, is there anything else you want to talk about today? I think that, I mean, what we're coming up on over an hour now, right? <laughs> yeah, we're almost at an hour and a half. Okay. We should probably wrap up here. I, I will probably commandeer your podcast at some other point. Yeah, do it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's about it for today. And the baby's starting to wake up again. Okay, so. cool. Well, we have to attend to her. Yeah. Um, thanks, everybody, oh, for listening. You spit up all over me. That's exciting. Oh, did she really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that's exciting, though. She hasn't spit up very much lately. Yeah. Oh, she spit no. She my bra the other day. Really? Yeah. That, you know, that, that seems fine. You can wash those, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. You've washed my bras. Well, I don't, I don't sniff them for spit up. Oh, I guess I have washed them, but. Well, we're I mean, saying about paying attention to stuff. I know. Well, okay. But that's the thing, right? Like I pay attention to the things that I pay attention to, but then I pay absolutely no attention to everything else. Like That's true. Anyway. Your, your attention and allocation is very all or nothing. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, I hope this lived up to your expectations and uh, catch you around next week. All Take right. care. Bye.